Chapter 10, Part 2 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 10 Part 2 A Silver Wedding I have lived, I have loved No joy can put her out of sympathy with the trials of friends A glance backward Last interview with a dying friend More love and more likeness to Christ Funeral of a little baby Letters to Christian friends If 1870 was the crowning year in Mrs Prentice's life the 16th of April was that year's most precious jewel. As the time drew nigh, a glow of tender, grateful recollection suffused her countenance. Her eyes are homes of silent prayer. She talked of the past, like one lost in wonder, while the light and beauty of the vanished years appeared still to rest upon her spirit. The day itself, which had been kept from the knowledge of most of her friends, was full of sweet content, rehearsing, as it were, all the days of her married life. And at its close, the measure of her earthly joy seemed to be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. To Mrs. Leonard, New York, April the 16th, 1845 to 1870. Do you know that it is just 25 years since we first met? How gladly would I spend the day of our silver wedding with you. You will see that I am near in spirit at all events. My thoughts have been busy the past week with reviewing the years through which I have travelled hand in hand with my dear husband. Years full of sin, full of suffering, full of joy. Brimful of the loving kindness and tender mercy that smote often and smote surely. Your last letter only confirms what I already knew, but am never tired of hearing repeated, the faithfulness of God to those whom he afflicts. When we once find out what he is to an aching, empty heart, we want to make everybody see just what we see, and, until we try in vain, think we can. I had very peculiar feelings in relation to you when your dear husband was for a time parted from you. I knew God would never afflict you so if he had not something beautiful and blissful to give in place of what he took. And what can we ask for that compares for one instant with the almost constant felt presence of our Saviour's sympathy and support? Our human nature would like to have the earthly and the divine friendship at once, but if we must choose between the twain, Surely you and I would choose Christ without one moment's hesitation. I hope you mention my name every day to him as I do yours, as I love to do. I enclose and want you, when by yourself, to sing for my sake a little hymn that I am sure is the language of your heart. My dear husband had a few copies struck off to give friends. Write soon and often. Oh, that you lived here or at Dorset. 
Goodbye with warmest love, now twenty-five years old. To Mrs. Condict, New York, April the 20th, 1870. Last Saturday was the 25th anniversary of our marriage and a very happy day to us both. My dear husband wrote me a letter that made me tremble, lest he should get such hold of me as no human being must have. I have a very curious feeling about life, a satisfied one, and as if it could not possibly give me much more than I now have. I have lived, I have loved. People often say they have so much to live for. I can't feel so, though I am not only willing, but glad to live while my husband and children need me. And yet, and yet, to have this problem solved and to be forever with the Lord. I want to see you. I can no longer see my dear Mrs. B. She is too ill, and that makes me miss you the more. I hope that little manuscript of mine did not task your sympathies. I don't want you to pity me, but to magnify him who took such pains with me and is carrying on just such work in thousands of hearts and lives. What goodness! What condescension! The least we can do who have suffered much is to love much. I have been studying the Bible on the subject of giving personal testimony and think it makes this a plain duty. There is nothing like the influence of one living soul on another. Then why should we not naturally speak to everybody who will listen of what fills our thoughts, our Saviour, his beauty, his goodness, his faithfulness, his wisdom? I don't believe a full heart can help running over. To a young friend, April the 21st, 1870. I was right sorry to lose your Saturday's call. It was a happy day to me, but I can conceive of no enjoyment of any sort that would put me out of sympathy with the trials of friends. Old and young are bringing troubles, great and small, for me to hear. I have often blessed by sorrows that drew others' grief so near. I thought I was saying a very ordinary thing when I spoke of thanking God for his long years of discipline. But very likely, life did not look to me at your age as it does now. I was rather startled the other day to find it written in German, in my own hand. I cannot say the will is there, referring to a hymn which says, Der will ist da, die Kraft ist klein, doch wird dir nicht so wieder sein. I suppose there was some great struggle going on when this foolish heart said that, just as if God did not invariably do for us the very best that can be done. You speak of having your love to Jesus intensified by interviews with me. It can hardly be otherwise when those meet together who love him, and it is a rule that works both ways, acts and reacts. I should be thankful if no human being could ever meet me, even in a chance way, and not go away clasping him the closer, and if I could meet no one who did not so stir and move me. It is my constant prayer. I have such insatiable longings to know and love him better that I go about hungering and thirsting for the fellowship of those who feel so too. 
when I meet them, I call them my benedictions. Next best to being with Christ himself, I love to be with those who have his spirit and are yearning for more of his likeness. You speak of putting deep and dark chasms between yourself and Christ. He lets us do this that we may learn our nothingness, our weakness, and turn disgusted from ourselves to him. May I venture to assure you that the chasms occur less and less frequently as one presses on, till finally they turn into mountains of light. Get and keep a will for God, and everything that will is ready for will come. This is about a tenth part of what I might say. To Miss E. A. Warner, New York, April the 25th, 1870. I wish I could describe to you my last interview with Mrs. B. She had altered so in two weeks in which I had not seen her that I should not have known her. She spoke with difficulty, but by getting close to her mouth I could hear all she said. She went back to the first time she met me, told me her heart then knitted itself to mine and how she had loved me ever since, etc., etc. I then asked her if she had any parting counsel to give me. No, not a word. Someone came in and wet her lips, gave her a sprig of citronatus, and passed out. I crushed it and let her smell the bruised leaves, saying, You are just like these crushed leaves. She smiled and replied, Well, I haven't had one pain too many, not one, but the agony has been dreadful. I won't talk about that. I just want to see your sunny face. I asked if she was rejoicing in the hope of meeting lost friends and the saints in heaven. She said with an expressive look, Oh no, I haven't got so far as that. I've only got as far as Christ. For all that, I said, you'll see my father and mother there. Why, so I shall, with another bright smile. But her lips were growing white with pain, and I came away. Did I tell you it was our silver wedding day on the 16th? We had a very happy day, and if I could see you, I should like to tell you all about it. But it is too long a story to tell in writing. I don't see, but I've had everything this life can give, and have a curious feeling as if I had got to a stopping place. I heard yesterday that two of M's teachers had said they had looked at her with perfect awe on account of her goodness. I really never knew her to do anything wrong. To a young friend, New York, May the 1st, 1870. I could write forever on the subject of Christian charity, but I must say that in this case you refer to, I think you accuse yourself unduly. We are not to part company with our common sense because we want to clasp hands with the love that thinketh no evil and we cannot help seeing that there are few, if any, on earth without beams in their eyes and foibles and sins in their lives. The fact that your friend repented and confessed his sin entitled him to your forgiving love but not to the ignoring of the fact that he was guilty Temptations come sometimes in swarms, like bees, and running away does no good, and fighting only exasperates them. The only help must come from him who understands and can control the whole swarm. 
You ask for my prayers, and I ask for yours. I long ago formed the habit of praying at night individually, if possible, for all who had come to me through the day, or whom I had visited. But you contrived to get a much larger share than that. I love to think of your future holiness and usefulness as even in the very least linked to my prayers. Oh, I ought to know how to pray a great deal better than I do, for forty years ago, save one, I this day publicly dedicated myself to Christ. I write to you because I like to do so, recognising no difference between writing and talking. When no better work comes to me, I am glad to give the little pleasure I can in notes and letters. He who knows how poor we are, how little we have to give, does not disdain even a note like this, since it is written in love to him and to one of his own dear ones. May the 23rd. Your last letter was like a fragrant breath of country air, redolent of flowers, and all that makes rural scenes so sweet. But better still, it was fragrant with love to him who is the bond between us, in whose name and for whose sake we are friends. I wish I loved him better and were more like him. Perhaps that is about as far as we get in this world, for no matter how far we advance, we are never satisfied. There is always something ahead. I doubt if anyone ever said, even in a whisper and to himself, Now I love my Saviour as much as a human soul can. You speak of my having given you counsels. Have I had the presumption to do that? Two-thirds of the time I feel as if I wanted somebody to counsel me. The only thing I really know that you do not is what it is to be beaten with persistent, ceaseless stripes, year after year, year after year, with scarcely breathing time between. I don't know whether this is most an argument against me or for God. On the whole, it is most for him, who is so good and kind as never to spare me for my writhing and groaning. Truly, as I value this discipline, I want you to give yourself to him so unreservedly that you will not need such sharp treatment. I am not going to keep writing and getting you into debt. All I ask is if you ever feel a little under the weather and want a specially loving or cheering word to give me the chance to speak or write it. A chapter might be written about Mrs. Prentice's love for little children, the enthusiasm with which she studied all their artless ways, her delight in their beauty, and the reverence with which she regarded the mystery of their infant being. Her faith in their real, complete humanity, their susceptibility to spiritual influences, and, when called from earth, their blessed immortality in and through Christ was very vivid and it was untroubled by any of those distressing doubts or misgivings that are engendered by the materialistic spirit and science of the age. Contempt for them shocked her as an offence against the holy child Jesus, their King and Saviour. Her very look and manner as she took a young infant, especially a sick or dying infant, in her arms, and gave it a loving kiss, seemed to say, Sweet baby, little as thou art, Thou art a human whole, thou hast a little human heart, thou hast a deathless soul. 
The following letter to a Christian mother dated May the 13th will show her feeling on this subject. This morning we attended the funeral of a little baby, eight months old. My husband, in his remarks, said that though born and ever continuing to be a sufferer, it was never saddened by this fellowship with Christ, and that he believed it was a partaker of his holiness, and glad through his indwelling, even though unconscious of it. During the last days of its life, after each paroxysm of coughing, it would look first at its mother, then at its father for sympathy, and then look upward, with a face radiant beyond description. I can't tell you how it touched me to think that I had in that baby a little Christian sister, not merely redeemed, but sanctified from its birth, and I know it will touch and strengthen you to hear of it. I felt a reverence for that tiny, lifeless form that I cannot put into words. And, indeed, why should it be harder for God to enter into the soul of an infant than into our unlikeliest ones? I see more and more that if we have within us the mind of Christ, we must bear the burden of other griefs than our own. He did not merely pity suffering humanity. He bore our griefs, and in all our afflictions, he was afflicted. To Mrs. Condict, June the 6th, 1870. If you can get hold of the April number of the Bibliotheca Sacra, read an article in it called Psychology in the Life, Work and Teachings of Jesus. I think it very striking and very true. Praying for Dr. Bank this morning, I had such a peaceful feeling that he was safe. Do you feel so about him? I had a very different experience about another man who has been to see me since I began this letter and who said I was the first happy person he ever met. May God lay that to his heart. Rummaging among dusty things in the attic this forenoon with great repugnance, I found such a beautiful letter from my husband, written for my solace in Switzerland when he was in Paris. He wrote me every day, sometimes twice a day, during the two months of our enforced separation, that even the drudgery of getting my hands soiled and my back broken was sweetened. That's the way God keeps on spoiling us, one good thing after another, till we are ashamed. Well, let us step onward, hand in hand. I wonder which of us will outrun the other and step in first, I am so glad I'm willing to live. In the course of this spring, The Percy's was published. The story first came out as a serial in the New York Observer. It was translated into French under the title La Famille Percy. In 1876, a German version appeared under the title Die Famille Percy. It was also republished in London. End of chapter 10, part 2